This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's program... Children have to work uh, harvesting cocoa pods, transporting cocoa pods or drying cocoa, and uh, they miss out on an education. The worst thing that could happen is that children have sourced your gold for the wedding ring. That's not the way you want to start into a family life. Regular listeners may remember that a couple of weeks ago, Inside Geneva had a look at business and human rights and at how the United Nations tries to encourage member states to make sure businesses behave responsibly, whether those businesses are located on their territory, purchasing raw material from other countries, or producing and selling their products in many different parts of the world. Here's a flavour of what our guests, the UN's Lena Ventland, and Arvind Gannison of Human Rights Watch had to say. There isn't a UN police that can come in and, and punish companies. It is predicated on national governments doing what they have undertaken to do under their international human rights standards. The UN cannot regulate things at an international level that states already haven't agreed to regulate at a national level. So those comments after the programme got me thinking. The UN wants member states to do the right thing, but as ever, member states have sovereignty over their own laws. So I thought, let's take a look at one member state to see what they're really doing. This member state, in fact, the one we're standing in right now, Switzerland. Everyone along the chain of this chocolate bar made enough money to not live in poverty it would filter into Switzerland, be re-melted and stamped Swiss gold. And to take a deeper dive into Swiss business responsibility, Inside Geneva, some listeners may already know, has a sister podcast, The Swiss Connection, which looks at all sorts of things related to Switzerland, including business. So today, I'm really pleased to welcome Swiss Connections host, Susan Misika. Susan, first of all, really glad to have you here. Tell us a bit about your podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Imogen. The Swiss Connection, as you said, it's it can be all things Swiss. I mean, what we do really is take it. We're not talking about cheese and chocolate per se, but more we're taking universal topics that have strong Swiss ties And this could be in business, this could be in culture, politics, science. We had a really good spy thriller not too long ago. It was about crypto age. Not to be confused with cryptocurrency, but this was this encryption device made by a Swiss company. And it turned out it was being manipulated. So we got the backstory on that and how a Swiss salesman was actually imprisoned in Iran. and, And nobody knew why for so long what was going on. We've talked to Swiss musicians and gotten sneak peeks of some of their music. Uh, We took a ride up in an electric airplane, one of the first ones to be licensed. (laughs) Sooner you than me. (laughs) So we bring really a variety of stories. So it's a program really, I guess, with something for everyone who has even the slightest interest in Switzerland. I can recommend, by the way, the crypto program. Absolutely fascinating. So fascinating. You're not going to hear any more about it on this program. You're going to have to go back to the Swiss Connection to hear it all. Because what we want to talk about is what we said at the top of the program, business. Now, you've been working, Susan, on a program about arguably Switzerland's most famous product that's not watches. No chocolate. 
the average person in Switzerland eats 10 kilos of per year, or if you think in pounds, that would be about 22 pounds. However, it's got a dark side. Uh, I'm not talking about dark chocolate, but I'm talking about the fact that there are a lot of children working in production. Uh, in West Africa alone, it's 1.5 million children. That's the estimate. And so I was talking to a colleague of mine, Anand Chandra Shaker. He reports on multinational companies and the impact of their work on, on people and the environment. And so Anand and I actually went chocolate shopping to try and figure out whether the chocolate we were considering buying involved child labor. So here we are in uh, Co-op City in the Swiss capital Bonn hunting for child labor free chocolate. Hmm. What do you think? Are we going to find anything? You'd think we would. I mean, it's such a big selection. Let's have a look. What about these over here, the, all the green hearts, Natura Plan and organic? They've got a fair trade uh, label on it. Now that probably means that they paid a minimum price for the cocoa that was used in the making of this chocolate. That doesn't mean it's a fair price, but uh, it's, it's a little bit more than what the market rates are. And I know that fair trade also follows certain uh, regulations uh, regarding child labor. So nobody under 15 has worked in, in, on a cocoa farm to make this chocolate. Nobody under 18 uh, has worked there without going to school, so. Well, that's quite a good promise, isn't it? Oh, after eight, now that's, I'm curious to see what the label is on those. That's, oh, that is Nestle after eight. Okay, so they've got the Nestle cocoa. Cocoa plan. But just looking at cocoa plan, I, I have no idea whether children were involved in the making of this chocolate or no. So it's, from a consumer point of view, it doesn't say much. But there's a website there. What does that say? Nestlecocoplan.com. So we, we could look at that after. Seeing all this chocolate and, and talking about it, I'm starting to get a bit hungry. I might actually need to have a bit before we go back to the studio, Anand. I understand there's so many varieties of chocolates on so many supermarket shelves and there's so many labels. Even the experts will be confused. So let's go back to the studio and, and see the journey that these chocolates have taken to get here. Well, Anna, that was harder than I thought it would be. It's just not really possible to make an informed decision. We didn't see any labels that specifically said no child labor was in this product. Yeah, it's not easy at all. I was talking to an expert uh, named James Sumberg, who works on African rural youth employment. And even he agreed that chocolate labels need a revamp. I mean, given a choice, I'll always buy a fair trade or a rainforest alliance or, a, you know, I'll, I'll always do that. So I think what you'd want to say is that everyone along the chain of this, the value chain, if you will, of this chocolate bar made enough money to not live in poverty. Let me put it that way. So some words like that. And that would go a long way, it would go a very long way, I think, to stopping the exploitative side of child labor. So Susan, I can imagine that just about every shopper in Switzerland will want to know if the favourite food chocolate that they're buying, if making that chocolate involved any form of child labor or other human rights abuses. Now we heard from the United Nations that they need individual countries and, of course, big business on board. 
What have you been finding out about what's going on in Switzerland? I mean, some of the biggest chocolate companies in the world are here. Yeah, definitely. Some really big names. And of course, things like sustainability and, and traceability, those are on the lips of so many companies now. And, and they've got to um, really make sure that the products that they're creating and the, the raw materials they're sourcing are in fact things that people could feel good about buying and consuming. Uh, still, it's just not easy. And it's a very market-driven economy. But Anand was looking into you know, ways that the issue is being discussed more in depth and, and where change can be made. There are some really big Swiss names. In fact, the biggest ones that come to mind are Nestle and Lindt, uh, which are these huge uh, chocolate companies in Switzerland. But there's also another kind of company called a commodity firm. So these commodity firms, uh, what they do is they buy a lot of the cocoa beans from places like West Africa. They transport them all the way to places like Switzerland, where they're then processed and transformed into uh, different products, raw materials for chocolate like uh, cocoa butter or cocoa powder, which then the chocolate manufacturers buy of them and use them to make the chocolate that we find in supermarkets. So one such big commodity firm in Switzerland is, is Barry Calibo. It's one of the biggest in the world and it's, it's a very big player in, in cocoa. So you can see, you know, if you look at the commodity firms, if you look at the chocolate manufacturers, there are very few players in mall which means they can keep the prices down and, and uh, keep the slice that the farmer gets uh, very small as well. Well, that's certainly very interesting. And yeah, you can see that the price would really be driven down if there are only a few players involved. But what's this all got to do with child labor? I mean, you just have to consider a farmer growing cocoa in uh, Ghana or the Ivory Coast. Because of the low amount of money that uh, he or she gets from selling cocoa beans to commodity companies, uh, there's not enough left over to pay for their children to go to school. This means that uh, instead of going to school, the children have to work uh, harvesting cocoa pods, transporting cocoa pods or drying cocoa, and uh, they miss out on an education. So in effect, they're almost forced to work because of the low prices that are given to them by these companies. And that sound you're hearing now is of a family working in Burkina Faso. That was recorded for Swiss public television in a documentary. And as, yet, as you can hear, it's a tough life for many children in West Africa. You can hear them schlepping those heavy sacks and hacking the pods open. And it's media reports like this that have really helped raise awareness of the issue. The chocolate companies claim that they've invested millions in stopping child labor, but still, there are over one and a half million kids who are working on the cocoa farms. So has this money or effort made any difference? I mean, it's, it's true that uh, chocolate companies have invested millions of dollars in, in monitoring uh, child labor situation on, on cocoa farms. But it's very difficult to, to compare whether this has made a difference or not, because uh, uh, of the very nature of the studies that have been done, you know, many of them have uh, used different methodologies, so it's difficult to compare. Uh, and uh, cocoa cultivation has expanded, so there are more more cocos grown, so it's more likely that more children will be involved in there as well. So um, there are all these difficult issues that make it quite difficult to compare. 
But uh, there has been some progress, you know, applying all this pressure on chocolate companies and this increased investment in cocoa growing areas has resulted in uh, a higher school attendance of children. Uh, for example, in Ivory Coast, uh, the school attendance increased from 58% to, to 80% uh, in the last 10 years, which is quite a significant increase. So the money has made a difference to cocoa growing areas, you know, compared to other parts of the other country. Susan, I find it really interesting hearing Anand talk about pressure there and changes that are being made. Because, of course, again, as we heard at the beginning of the program, the United Nations wants governments to legislate. Here in Switzerland, we saw that nationwide referendum on business responsibility, which would have forced big companies to take responsibility for human rights abuses or environmental damage right across their supply chain from Burkina Faso to your cup of hot chocolate here in Bern. It failed at the ballot box, but by the tiniest, tiniest margin. And we know the government is introducing a more voluntary uh, set of rules for business. Some people are a bit frustrated. They would have preferred proper legislation. Clearly, consumer pressure is going to be key here. So, you know, going back to that trip to the supermarket, if I go after this show and buy myself a bar of chocolate, what should I be looking for? Is there a specific thing where I can be really sure or is that still impossible? It's not impossible, Imogen. It just takes a bit of time and effort. So when you go into the supermarket, you're going to want to yeah, check each package carefully and I was asking Anna the same question, actually. What are some of the labels that we can trust? Well, there are a few big international ones like uh, Germany-based uh, Fairtrade or uh, the U.S.-based Rainforest Alliance or the Dutch-based uh, UTZ. These are some of the big ones that follow the International Labour Organization's guidelines on, on minimum age. So they kind of try and ensure that uh, children below, say, 13 to 15 years of age uh, are not involved in, in the making of your chocolate bar. But it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of impossible to, to guarantee that no children were involved at all in the whole process because these are uh, audits that are com conducted you know, a few times a year and it's very difficult to completely eliminate uh, children from the supply chain. And are there labels that allow children under 13 to work? Well, there's a, a Swiss-based uh, label called uh, Fair for Life. Uh, they allow children under 12 to work, but they should be working on their family farms. And, uh, you know, they should be only be doing light work, uh, not more than two hours, and uh, they should be going to school. So that's just a flavour, really, of Susan's Swiss Connection programme about chocolate and the way the Swiss do chocolate. I urge you go and listen to the whole thing. It is fascinating, particularly there is even a debate among human rights activists about whether some forms of child labour are actually OK in some circumstances. So go and take a listen. Now... Moving on, we know chocolate is the iconic Swiss product, but there's another globally sought-after item that Switzerland does a lot of business into, and the Swiss Connection has been looking into that. It's 
the gold trade. Digging improvised holes into the mountain, everybody with a shotgun in their pocket because it's Wild West, there is no police. Hmm, Susan, I once did a story down in southern Switzerland in Canton Ticino about gold production. It wasn't the Wild West. I didn't see anyone, well, not with a visible shotgun. I have a feeling there were a few because there was a lot of gold there. But it took me months to negotiate access and to get a camera team in there. It's an industry that seems really closed, really secretive. So how much are we allowed to know about it? What have you been finding out? Well, I'm not surprised, Imogen, that you had a hard time actually getting that organized, especially getting a camera in. Switzerland is the world leader when it comes to gold refining, processing, and also consumption. And regarding refining, it's somewhere between half and two-thirds of the world's gold that comes through Switzerland. This is why there's, there's quite a focus on it these days. And I spoke to someone who's very knowledgeable, Mark Piet. He's an anti-corruption champion. Uh, he's also a retired criminal law professor from Basel University. And he's written a book called Gold Laundering, The Dirty Secrets of the Gold Trade and How to Clean Up. And this is what he was telling me. The place I visited in Peru, you had the most ugly place in the world, 60,000 miners living under conditions like in Sacramento in 1870. In, it's on 5,500 meters at minus 20 degrees, no heating, digging uh, improvised holes into the mountain, everybody with a shotgun in their pocket because it's Wild West. There is no police for 60,000 rough guys and 4,000 forced prostitutes. So it's, it's, very, it's a very rough landscape. What can the ordinary consumer do? Well, I think the consumer can do quite a lot. Um, the consumer can ask, where is this, this gold from? If you want to buy a wedding ring, I mean, the worst thing that could happen is that children uh, have sourced your gold for the wedding ring. That's not the, the way you want to start into a family life, to put it a bit bluntly. So um, you would want to know where it comes from. You also have those people at the sales front. You have banks advertising, we are selling clean gold, especially now with this gold hype. A lot of investors are buying gold with the gold price well over $50,000 for a kilo. So I think consumers play a really big role. Those details, Susan, are really disturbing. And it comes across, again, the gold trade is a very murky business. But Switzerland, like with chocolate, it's a key player in this industry. So going back and banging the drum for the United Nations and its principles on business and human rights, what did you find out? What are the big players in Switzerland in gold? What are they doing or what does the law oblige them to do? Well, this year, 2021, uh, the law did get tougher on gold imports. So Swiss customs law now requires that gold needs to be declared more precisely. However, it's not quite the silver bullet that people were hoping for. Yes, well, um, if you go into the statistics um, until recently, um, the Swiss customs statistics didn't uh, tell where the gold originated from. It would be more the, the question, where was it actually uh, dispatched? So you have 
the biggest figures for London because you have gold in a vault that has been there for 20 years and you have huge figures from Dubai coming into Switzerland and you ask yourself, what is this all about? The reason is the gold in Dubai could be, I'm not saying it has to be, but it could be from conflict, think of Congo, Darfur, or from very bad uh, human rights exploitation, human rights um, abuse in Latin America. And then it would filter into Switzerland, be re-melted um, and stamped Swiss gold. As I understood earlier this year, the law changed, customs law in Switzerland, demanding that gold be better declared. Is that so? Well, that's true, yes. That's the first timid step. I mean, up to now, it was really awkward. Even if you knew where it came from, you didn't have to declare that. So if um, you knew that the gold from Dubai came from Sudan, you could say uh, origin Dubai. Now, Dubai has a lot of gold on the souk and the market and, uh, and in the refineries, but there is no gold in the earth there. Rather, there's an, a direct and continuous influx from the war zones in South Sudan. Now, the idea is to try to pick up the real origin. And um, now, this is difficult, of course, because there's a lot of old gold that one uh, is what comes in, and there you cannot find out where it comes from. Sadly, we're coming almost to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva, but I have. One last question for you, Susan, because listening to those really interesting interviews, both about chocolate and about gold, it comes more and more down to, yes, some companies are doing something. Yes, some governments are doing something. But we, the consumers, we're at the heart of it, aren't, aren't we? We really have to exert our buying pressure. So... In the, I have to say, very unlikely event that I was going to go out and buy some gold in Switzerland, what should I be looking for? Well, in the unlikely event, or who knows, you know, maybe maybe someone will treat you. Oh, I'm going out to fill the lottery card right now. <laughs> Certainly ask. Ask where it comes from. That's something any vendor had ought to be able to tell you. And even if they don't know, even if you're with a sales associate who isn't aware, I think just asking the question gets them thinking about it and gets them talking to their managers about it. And the managers in return, they're working with the suppliers and it works its way up. You know, it is supply and demand. If there is a demand for clean gold, then hopefully that can be fulfilled. Okay, so all of you out there thinking of buying gold or indeed chocolate, take Susan's advice. Go and ask if you can't see immediately where it comes from, ask. Because your supermarket or your jeweler or your, your gold trader... If people keep asking them those questions, they're going to realise too, maybe time to change our strategy. I would urge our listeners, you can listen to all of that gold programme on the Swiss Connection. You can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Just before we go, though, Susan, tell us a bit about what you've got coming up on the programme. 
Well, we're headed to Locarno for the International Film Festival. Oh, I'm so jealous. I've never managed to go there. Well, I have managed, although I'm not going for this edition. I will actually be talking to a colleague, Eduardo Simontobe, who is down there also with uh, another colleague, Carlo Pisani. And they're going to be there the whole time uh, delivering a big multimedia package. And there's something like, it's over 200 films being shown in the 10 days. And and it's going to be a proper film festival, isn't it? Compared with last year when it was a virtual only, a bit of a, a bit of a sad event. That's right. There will be people there, and of course, they're still calling it a safe festival. There, they still have measures in place for the pandemic, but people are really excited about yeah. gathering on that Piazza Grande to, to watch a film in the thousands. Oh, I know. That's. I mean, like I said, I've never been. I've seen pictures, and it looks like the most stunning event to attend. Well, Susan, thanks for joining us. Just to do a little bit of self-promotion, not to forget Inside Geneva, coming up over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at lethal autonomous weapons, or killer robots, as they're sometimes called, because there are talks taking place in Geneva aimed at getting a treaty to restrict, maybe even forbid their use by the end of this year. And we're going to take a look again at humanitarian aid because after years of trying to create aid projects and strategies that are bottom-up and community-centred, people are still suggesting that aid agencies are getting it wrong. Is there still too much north-south control? And in fact, do we need to decolonize aid? Lots of good listening to look forward to there from both the Swiss Connection and Inside Geneva. My thanks today to Susan Masika for joining us and to our studio producer, Daniel Wheeler, and of course to all of you for listening. I'm Imogen Folks. Join us again on Inside Geneva. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swiss Info. You can hear more by going to our website, swissinfo.ch. And of course, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time. <laughs>